questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Restoring the Soul program, Season 5. Not sure what episode this is overall, but it's the second of a two-part conversation with Jonathan Merritt, author of the recently released book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. By the way, if you're interested in a good synopsis of this book uh, in regard to the fact that it's harder to speak about God, Jonathan published a really great essay in Sunday's New York Times just three days ago, and the name of that uh, op-ed essay was It's Getting Harder to Talk About God. Um, A great, great essay, and I'm so thankful for people with the gifts like Jonathan to be able to take cultural ideas and boil them down to some succinct, big categories, and then to be able to access and publish and Uh, institutions like the New York Times and others. So who is Jonathan Merritt? He is an award-winning writer on religion, culture, and politics. He currently serves as a contributing writer for The Atlantic and a contributing editor for The Week. He has published more than, listen to this, 3,500 articles in respected outlets such as The New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today. You know, I have two master's degrees, and I don't think I've written 3,500 of anything, so that's just staggering to me. Jonathan is a respected voice in radio and TV as well. He regularly contributes commentary to ABC World News, NPR, CNN, PBS, MSNBC, Fox News, and 60 Minutes. In addition to his book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Jonathan is the author of A Faith of Our Own, Following Jesus Beyond the Culture Wars, and Jesus is Better Than You Imagined. He has collaborated on or ghostwritten more than 50 additional books with several titles that he has penned landing on New York Times bestsellers list or USA Today or Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. He is named one of 30 young influencers reshaping Christian leadership by Outreach magazine. He's a sought-after speaker at colleges, conferences, and churches, and he's a journalist by day, but he holds a Master of Divinity from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and a Master of Theology from Emory University Candler School of Theology. He resides in Brooklyn, New York, and here is one fun fact about him. Perhaps not fun, as in like he likes Frisbee golf or something like that, but Jonathan's father was at one time the president of the Southern Baptist Association, and so part of his story that he alludes to in this interview uh, and growing up in the South in that particular kind of culture was shaped by that and contributes to his unique views. So here we go with part two. Let's jump into my conversation with Jonathan Merritt. When you start to truly grow spiritually in the organic sense that it's not striving or trying to be something, that your language will change because you change on the inside. Mm -hmm. My childhood conception of God was a lot like my grandfather. Uh, sort of cantankerous, combative. Uh, he loved me, but you wouldn't cross him. Uh, you were afraid. There was, a, there was an underlying fear 
of what would happen if you crossed him. And there were things that you could do to earn approval and affection and things you could do to raise his ire. Well, as I, as I got older, I had to consider whether perhaps, and this happened to me in counseling, whether maybe as I've matured, that word God needed to mature alongside me. Maybe my God didn't at all look like my grandfather. Maybe the real calling was for my grandfather to conform to the image of God. Maybe that was, I was seeing it in the wrong direction. I was, I was, I was overlaying what I thought a father or a grandfather should be on the divine father rather than the other way around. A lot of people do this, but here's the problem. When I began to accept, wait, God loves me unconditionally and there's nothing I can do today to earn God's, earn more of God's love or earn less of God's love. Suddenly my worldview fractured and I had to understand, okay, wait, now, how do I live now? Does, does that mean that I can just do whatever I want? Now I have to answer that question. I didn't even have to answer that question before. before it was just, here are the rules, follow the rules. Here are the rules, follow the rules. Now everything is reordered. That's risky. That's risky to consider that perhaps that notion of God needs to change, evolve, be reimagined. And for a lot of people out there, uh, they are not willing to walk that road. They would just, they would much rather just have things ordered and the way things are. And if, if, if that's the approach, if fossilization is your approach, you will be in some way comforted uh, because you don't have to undergo that chaos. But if, if we by and large take that approach, then sacred speech will be nearly extinct in my lifetime. I love how you took uh, Walter Brueggemann and Richard Rohr, and I'm forgetting the third thinker. N.T. Wright. Yeah, N.T. Wright, sorry. Uh, not, not exactly three lightweights, but you took this idea of order, disorder, reorder, Brueggemann's idea of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And what that felt like to me was not just a cognitive model of understanding words, but giving people an understanding and giving me that this is an internal process, a spiritual process, as much as it is, you know, a cognitive understanding of words. Mm-hmm. That, was that intentional to, to kind of say that this has to be part of your journey as much as looking up words in a dictionary? Yes, yes. Um, because I think that, I think that people most God speakers, if you will, uh, most Christians, I'll say, most believers, most people of faith, tend to, there's there's kind of a ways to communicate the Christian message or to express belief. One is through words. The other is through life, embodiment, action. And people tend to be stronger with one of those arms. And the other one tends to be a little bit emaciated. So you have a lot of people today who were preached at that just say, you know what, just go do good deeds, go love people, um, hug on people, care for the orphan, and you're, gonna, you're good to go. Just live out the gospel. There's that old famous quote that's often attributed to St. Francis, you know, preach the gospel at all times if necessary, use words. Well, whoever said that, it is one of the bad quotes of all time because there is no way to express the gospel without words, 
Now, if you don't have action, if you don't have visible expressions of those words transformative power, then those words sort of feel empty. But if you just have action, uh, you need words to ex explain it. We are human beings. We are speech creatures. We articulate. That is what we do. Every civilization for all time that we know of articulated. They communicated with noise. And that's become increasingly uh, more developed over time. And so that's just the way that we're wired as humans. To, to pretend that when it comes to our faith, well, it's not like that is to miss the mark. What I say in the book is, I want to help spark a revolution in God speak with the book. But then I get to the end and I say, yes, but remember, it's not just words. In fact, words are, are, are a, a severely limited resource. Uh, Meister Eckhart, there's, a, there's a, uh, an endorsement on the back of the book from Josh Radner, some people may know as Ted Mosby from How I Met Your Mother. Uh, but Josh uh, actually says in his endorsement, he quotes uh, an early mystic named Meister Eckhart, who said, uh, we can never speak of God and we must never stop speaking of God. Hmm. And, and, and what that essentially means is, is that we're always getting at God with our words, but we're never getting all the way there. But it's an important discipline. Now, how do we get a little bit further there? Incarnation, embodiment, action. So yes, we have to speak grace. Yes, 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 we have to speak grace. But then at some point, we have to learn speaking is not enough. Now we have to learn to embody grace. We have to incarnate grace. And so that's really the call of this book is, this is a step one. This is a slice of the pie. It's not the whole thing. If all you do is start going out there and jabbering on about God and faith, and that's it, that's the full extent of your spirituality, well, that will be a, a shallow spirituality indeed. But it is an important part of what it means to be a spiritual person who's, who is serious about nurturing the inner life in themselves and those around them. So let's transition to this idea of how one begins to speak God is through playing with words. And you went and spent time with a Hebrew professor at Yale University, and you came away with an understanding that the Jewish, the ancient Jewish perspective of sacred words was really very, very playful. Yes, it was. So when you, when you look at, and part of this is, as I say in my book, I'm a faith and culture writer. So culture, history is always a part of my thinking. Uh, we, we live in the 21st century, and that matters. Well, in this way, how does that matter? Well, one of the ways it matters is, is we live in a post-dictionary era, that we've had always had access to dictionaries. No matter how old you are, dictionaries have always been a part of your life. It's either sat on your shelf, or it's lived inside your computer, hard drive, or it is accessed on your phone, on an app. So we've always had this notion that a word has a definition and somebody else is the holder of this definition. And so all I have to do is go look it up and I go, yes, that's what that word means. The problem is, is number one, that's not what a, a, a dictionary does. A, a, a dictionary doesn't really tell you what a word means. It tells you how a word is used by and large, which is why you have lots of meanings. How, it's, 
tells you by and large how we're how we are connecting these symbols, these these words with these meanings. And dictionaries are constantly revising themselves. So if it was fixed and universal, you'd write you'd write one dictionary. You might add some words, but you never change one. But dictionaries are always being changed. When you look at the ancient world, a pre-dictionary world, what you realize was is they had these words that they were using and they were figuring them out in community. And over time, as you look throughout history, these words were taking on new meanings. And so the ancient rabbis used to have this saying, they would say, God is in the wrestling. You know, post-enlightenment Christians, we think God's in the answer. Mm. I just figure it out. I've got the answer. I memorized the answer. Maybe I try to convince everybody else about the answer. But somewhere in between the question and the answer is a holy ground, a holy space that God shows up there. And what God might do if you invite God into that space between the question and the answer is God might do what God does best and work a miracle, bring new life, sprout new meaning out of a word that had those dry bones that suddenly is resurrected. And when we look at Christian history, we see that this happens again and again and again. Just like every other language, the spiritual vocabulary, the vocabulary of faith is growing and evolving over time. This makes people uncomfortable, some people. And I will say, though it feels a little squishy, uh, it doesn't mean that red becomes blue, as I say in the book. If If something can mean anything, then something means nothing at all. Uh, But words will take on new shades and textures and colors and nuance over time. And we've seen this time and time again. You talked about, as you were making reference to uh, the ancient Hebrew uh, writers and interpreters, and we're not referring to simply the writers of scripture, but the people that wrote the Talmud and different rabbis, you said that every term and every passage was treated as if it ended in a question mark rather than a period. And I, I loved that idea mm-hmm. that the question mark was, was open-ended and that there was some kind of, quote, truth there, but that that was like a diamond that could be looked at from different uh, points of view. Yeah. So, so they, if you ask an ancient Jew, what is an ancient Jewish religious thinker. What does this word mean? They wouldn't just give you one answer. They wouldn't write something down on an index card, hand it to you and say, go memorize this. They would, they would ask you a question back and you'd ask questions and you'd begin wrestling with this. And it was built on this notion that, and there's a whole practice actually built around this called midrash. People can look that up if you're not familiar, which is this process of imaginative reading. And there's a whole tradition. There's books and books and books of midrash, imaginations, imaginative writings that are kind of inserted into the text to kind of fill in the cracks a little bit. Um, and these were considered holy writings. Now, not the same. It's not, it's not, it's not the gospel truth. Uh, but there are sort of these holy uh, writings that there was something divine about wrestling, to wrestling, to, to work out your own salvation, to, bother, to borrow some kind of... Um, a New Testament language that you would work it out. And uh, the, the ancient Jews believed that, you know, just, just as every parable has at least three meanings, depending on how you look at it and how you read it, most scholars, even conservative scholars, agree on that. So most words, they would say, have the meaning that we ascribe to it, 
the meaning that it used to mean, maybe back when it was written. And then there are new meanings that we accept that we haven't even thought of yet. There are ways of thinking about and talking about that concept that we haven't even dreamed of yet, that our children or our grandchildren or our grandchildren's grandchildren will think about. That is not, by and large, the way that 21st century Western American conservative Christians think about language and meaning. Right. And we're seeing this more today coming up in dialogue, but you discussed in the book how culture and gender and socioeconomic status and ethnic and racial background also influence our understanding of words. Yes, that, yeah, that's correct. I mean, um, a great example. There is a, uh, a study that I referenced. So the back of the book, you know, we've talked about mostly the, the first chunk of the book, which is the ideological kind of setup, the setup, if you will. And then there's all these, um, all these chapters that are little essays on different words where I try to do my best imperfectly, admittedly imperfect, to wrestle with these words. But what I cite is a study in the, in the, in the chapter where I wrestle with the word spirit. I cite a, uh, a study where people were asked to describe a bridge. And they, the, the word bridge is actually masculine in Spanish and feminine in German. And the answers that they gave varied depending upon the respondent's native language. So Spanish speakers would say, a bridge, what do, what's word association? Strong, sturdy, towering, dangerous, culturally masculine words. German speakers would, say, would use culturally feminine words. They would say, what do I think of when I think of a bridge? Beautiful, elegant, fragile, slender, pretty. Their conceptions were different based on where they were, how they spoke it, how they understood the word. So what we're realizing now is different races, genders, geographies, all of these, all of these uh, uh, contexts shape the way that we speak and hear and understand different words. So what can often happen is, is if you get together with different people from different places and you begin to discuss these words from different contexts, you begin to achieve as a community a better understanding of what these concepts might mean. Because you may use this word in one way and someone may say, let me tell you how that impacts me as a woman. And you realize like, oh, I didn't realize that my understanding of that word hurt someone else. And maybe then there's a critique there that I should consider. Maybe I should rethink what that word means for me. Uh, but you'll never realize that if, you're, if your uh, understanding of meaning, of, of language, is uh, a process that's done in isolation that you just do yourself. And so what I'm really encouraging people to do is, is to get together with folks from different places and spaces and life experiences and genders and races and... Uh, and uh, to, to begin to dialogue around a common table about what these words mean, have meant, mean, and should mean for us. And just as a plug for uh, one of the helpful features in the book is at the very end, you have an appendix that's a how-to guide for seekers and speakers that actually includes an acronym, um, SPEAK, to be able to get together in groups to do that. Yeah, I le- I, what I try to do, I got to the end and I had a, I had a lot of people read this, this book and say, love it, helpful, agree with you, now what? And I thought, 
look, I'm not a self-help writer. <laughs> you go figure it out. I'm giving you the concepts. You go figure it out. And people said, you know, if you just gave me a touch, you've done all this work. If you could distill it down for me, that'd be super helpful so that I could replicate a process for this, this imaginative approach to language in my church, in my small group, uh, in my, with my mom's group, with uh, the PTA friends I have, with my fellow college students, et cetera, with my coworkers around uh, at lunchtime. You know, if you could give me a method. And so I, I sat around, I was looking at how it works and I wrote down the speak method, S-P-E-A-K, which is where you stop and you kind of, you begin to become aware of how often you speak God and why you don't when you don't. P was ponder, which is where you kind of take every word that you've put on your list one at a time. And everybody's kind of a part of this process. So everybody says, yeah, that word, I, I can't stand that word. It, it's become negative or maybe I can stand it, but I don't really know what it means anymore. It's become sort of shop worn. I've used the word so often, it, it, it's just a, a husk now. It doesn't have any meaning. And you would sit together and say, okay, what are the problems with the way that we've understood this word, the way we've used this word? How has it misrepresented who I believe God is? How has it oppressed someone or discriminated against someone? How has it inhibited spiritual formation in my own life? And then the, after that, as you begin to explore, think about dream. And I, I use this kind of C.S. Lewis framework of a tree, which he uses to, to talk about how this process works in, in a book he wrote uh, called Studies and Words, which most of you people, if you're not uh, listening, if you're listening and you're not a language geek, probably you haven't read. Uh, and it is quite a boring book, but it was also quite helpful because he talks about language like a tree that grows over time, sprouting these new branches. And I use that to kind of overlay uh, on to this to say, let's now explore new ways of understanding that term. A then is apply it. Now you got to start using it. You have, and that takes courage to get out there and use it and to engage people and say, hey, what do you think what this word means? Let me tell you what I think this word means. And, and, and to sort of hold those, with, with, hold those loosely with open hands. And then the final one is to uh, keep talking. And I quote a great linguist uh, who once told the New York Times, the future of any language depends on the will of their speakers to maintain the use. At the end of the day, it comes back to us. Are you willing not just to speak God from scratch, but to keep speaking God from scratch? The way that we answer that question, those of us who consider ourselves God speakers, will determine whether this language flourishes or diminishes in the next 100 years. And what I really hope people will do is when they go through this book, when they read this appendix, that there will be a spark in their heart that sets their lips afire and they will say, yes, 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 I am willing to take up this task. It is important enough. I'm willing in community with my friends and my family and my neighbor and neighbors and my coworkers, I am willing to take up this charge to learn to speak God from scratch. So, Jonathan, as we are beginning to wrap up here in the last part of the book, you chose 19 or 20 words that are sacred words that you decided to, quote, play with and to imagine. And I thought you did a great job of unpacking those to look at how we think about them and what a new perspective might be. So can you choose maybe three words out of the list and 
just talk about what that was like to play with those? I, I loved uh, ta- playing with the word mystery. I, I came into this, you know, growing up, we didn't have much of a place for the word mystery in the vocabulary I spoke. We were the kind of church that did a lot of apologetics, uh, but a mystery was something you solved. And once you solved it, well, now you don't need to deal with it. We understood mystery in the way that Agatha Christie spoke it. Um, But here I kept reading in the scriptures and I was reading all these great thinkers, particularly mystics, who were talking about this ongoing mystery that you just kept unlocking. And I thought, okay, wait, so if mystery is something then that's unknowable, you can't know it. It's just a total mystery that can't be solved. And we would say, God, you don't solve the mystery of God. Uh, Why even try? And I had gone out to spend some time with a guy named Richard Rohr out in the New Mexican desert. And I, I told him, I said, well, Richard, what do you, Father Richard, what do you do uh, with uh, mystery? Because in mystery, if it's unknowable, why even, why even try to know it? And he said, Jonathan, I wonder if maybe you have misunderstood what mystery is. Maybe mystery is not the unknowable. It is the infinitely knowable that you, be, you keep learning about God from encountering and experiencing God. And even though you've learned more about God, you're no closer to knowing God than you were yesterday. You just keep going into the mystery, into the infinite unknowability or the infinite knowability of God. And that really felt like a liberating way of understanding mystery for me. I love another, it. Another word that sticks out to me uh, is the word blessed. I had a lot of people uh, use that word as I was going through this process, and it often had a little hashtag on the front of it. They would use it to uh, describe uh, luxurious vacations, the birth of new children, and it was always kind of like materialistic. It was very uh, privileged. And uh, then I talked to a friend of mine that uh, some people may know a girl named Kate Bowler, who's a, a historian of the American prosperity gospel. And she got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And she said, okay, how does this concept of blessed work for me? I'm not going to be healthy and wealthy and wise forever and ever. And so I began to shift my understanding in this chapter of blessing to in the same way that the new Testament shifts its understanding of blessing. And I asked the question, I'll read this uh, paragraph. It says, what if we began thinking about blessings as immaterial and internal, spiritual and supernatural? It's difficult to imagine attaching hashtag blessed to these sorts of virtues today and having the post go viral, but I bet we'd be better for it. And I think blessings can come in in a word of kindness. Blessings can come in the mundane and the ordinary. The types of blessings that, that most of us encounter most of the time, they don't look so sexy on Instagram, but they're important. The other word that I think of, the third word, is the word pain. And that is a word, you know, a lot of these words I chose, that's a word that chose me. I woke up and couldn't feel my hands. And that, that spread to my arms, to my shoulders, to my neck, to my back. And it became a mysterious chronic pain disorder that I still wrestle with. And I realized in that that there were two very bad conceptions of pain. One was uh, 
pain is a, a terrible thing, horrible thing, and you have to get rid of it, and God wants to get rid of it. You encounter this, for example, in the prosperity gospel movement. You also encounter this, I would say, subtly in most evangelical churches. And they say, oh, pain, it's, uh, the, the, the discomfort of life typically is the result. Emotional pain, uh, uh, physical pain, it, it often comes from sin or faithlessness. If you just had more faith, God would heal. And this is a terrible way to talk about pain for someone who's stuck in chronic pain. If you've got acute pain, you can kind of stomach it because it will go away at some point. But chronic pain, the nagging pain, the pain for which there is no cure that you can only manage like I have, this is a terrible conception because, and it also is very attractive because you Hmm. want what it promises, but it never delivers on that promise. The other conception of pain that you'll find in like new monastic traditions, a lot of a lot of the literature today, which is pain is a gift. Pain will teach you something. In fact, one of the primary ways you encounter God is in pain. Uh, the extreme expressions are the people in the desert who crucify themselves or these sla- uh, self-flagellation rituals or the deprivation that you find in, 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 in monasteries. Um, this is also pretty awful because Pain doesn't feel like a gift when it's not a gift you wanted and a gift you'd really like to get rid of. It sort of fails to to fit that definition of a gift. Uh, And so this is sort of a horrible way uh, to understand pain. But here I was, and I think a lot of people, if you're struggling with a chronic disorder, you're probably listening to this and you're stuck in between these two uh, conceptions of pain. And the question for a lot of us is, okay, what what does pain mean for us? And I think we have to answer that question in a world where a hundred million or more Americans now claim to have uh, chronic pain. And so what I say in the book, and I'll read this, it says, between these two poles, a third way understands pain as a negative and unfortunate presence that also has the ability to grow us, to teach us, even to lead us into greater spiritual awareness, we can seek to cure pain while also collaborating with pain, to sit with pain and listen to pain, and even while we try to alleviate it. And so I began to learn that pain was teaching me something, that terrible teacher that I did not want, that God does not want for me, was teaching me that I am not omnipotent, that I have to relinquish control of my present as well as my future, that I am not infinite, that I should enjoy each day without rushing through, that I'm often not empathetic, that, that I need to be more attentive to the painful cries around me. And someone that I'm sure you've read in your education, a guy named Carl Jung once said, if you kill your pain before you answer its questions, well, then you'll just kill yourself along with it. And I've come to believe that that's true. Jonathan, this is um, so, so stimulating. And I I just have to say this, uh, Philip Yancey is one of my heroes. And you remind me of a younger version of Philip Yancey in this regard. Um, I think that you're a brilliant writer like he is. But in all that you write, there's a very pastoral and caring and gentle confrontation with uh, with truth and how that impacts our lives. And he has spent his whole career talking about pain. Um, and you just in a very succinct way shared. So thank you for that. Oh, my, my pleasure. I've always said, you know, I was a preacher in a previous life for, for, a, <laughs> for a hot minute. 
And I've come to believe, and maybe it's because I grew up in a pastor's home. Maybe it's because I went to seminary and I became a preacher. I've always said that writing, first and foremost, like preaching, is an act of compassion. And if you don't do it that way, if, if, if you don't come to the, to, if you don't pick up the pen and say, I feel like I know something that I feel like you need to know, and it will make your life better uh, or richer or more beautiful or more true. And that's why I'm telling you. It's not to shame you or scold you or instruct you from on high, but it's out of having compassion for you. And that's why I'm speaking God with you to you. Um, Then you're doing it wrong. And I hope that when people read this book that they'll say they, they feel loved, that they feel empathized with, and that they feel cared for in its pages. You know what I envision is some major denomination or Christian conference having like 10,000 people together and the conference is called how to speak God from scratch. Mm -hmm. And instead of arguing about, that may not be a fair word arguing, instead of trying to be super precise about doctrine to step back and to do more of a 30,000 foot perspective and say, let's just think through our language Mm -hmm and the words and how that might affect how then theology and policy and protocol and even Mm -hmm. spiritual formation Mm -hmm. is, is handled. So Mm -hmm. I hope that this really takes off and I hope that it gets picked up by uh, leaders and thinkers and influencers. So I want to just thank you for your time here and uh, for what you've done, because it's obvious that this book was a real labor, but a labor of love. Well, thank you. Uh, The pleasure was all mine, and I'm happy to come back on and hang out with you anytime. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 